Money FM 89.3. Best of your money. Money and me on your money. Only on Money FM 89.3. So I wanted to do the show because I I just read an interesting article that says freezer stocks are now red hot. I hope my friend Nirgunan Tiruchelvam doesn't mind me cribbing from his uh, article about freezer stocks. He says, you know, Twinbird Corp, a Japanese consumer electronics maker, they've risen 53% on the back of Pfizer because, you know, it's all about vaccine distribution these days, right? He mentioned Snowman Logistics, Daihan Scientific, a market leader in South Korea, a singer Thailand, he sends Kellon. Those are consumer electronics companies that could also step in. They make a household fridges and freezers. So it looks like a lot of attention on refrigeration. The freezer is going to help save us from the pandemic. Imagine that. Uh, that's part of our show today. We're also going to be looking at key sectors to buy in a post-vaccine world, tech stocks that could fare. How are they going to fare with less of us working from home? And <laughs> um, uh, I know that our, our guest has lost money on Tesla. And maybe that's why we keep irritating him by asking him to, to, to weigh in on Tesla. How are you, Arun Pai? I am very good. Great introduction. Thank you, <laughs> Michelle. <laughs> Arun Pai is Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. We love him because he's got this great knack of simplifying the difficult and demystifying markets for us. All right. I want to start with news closer to home, Arun. Unit holders of Sabana and ESR REIT are going to vote tomorrow on what is surely one of the most controversial mergers in Singapore's recent history. Now, just a bit of background for the listener. The REIT managers say scale is needed for the Real Estate Investment Trust to thrive. Minority shareholders have questioned the acquisition price. They're also challenging the rules for proxy voting. That's a key issue because of social distancing restrictions. Sabana REIT is seeking approval for an amendment to its trust deed to allow for the appointment of only one proxy for the scheme meeting versus two proxies for any meeting of the REIT by custodians. Now, if this is approved at Friday's extraordinary general meeting, this amendment will be applicable for the scheme meeting that will be held later in that day when unit holders vote on the merger. Now, the deal, the merger's key opponents are Quartz Capital Management and Black Crane Capital, and they've raised concerns that the voting process involving the nominee banks, the custodians, they may be stacked against their interests. And the business Times has weighed in, reporting that in a letter seen by the newspaper, the fund managers, Quartz and Black Crane, um, claim that Sabana's REIT restrictions that custodians can only submit one proxy form would mean custodians will not be able to fully represent all unit holders' votes at the scheme meeting. Now, in a boss filing, Sabana Reed has counted, saying there is, quote, nothing unusual or improper about the voting rules. Arun, help us understand uh, voting rules when we're talking about a merger that's being carried out uh, via trust in this fashion. Sure thing. And, uh, you know, the big caveat is I'm definitely no legal expert. And at the risk of losing half your audience by going into this nitty-gritty topic, I will try to keep it as simple as possible. Okay, so the fundamental issue is uh, one proxy versus two proxies. And the difference lies in the details of how that individual proxy takes shape. So, you know, when we buy shares in a certain company, it could be a bank, it could be a Sabana, whatever, ESRE, any underlying stock, the custodian of the shares tends to be a larger financial institution. 
So I trade my Singapore shares via DBS. So DBS is my custodian. When a certain vote takes place, be it for a merger acquisition, which is in this case, uh, I can choose for my shares that I have, I can choose to vote either for or against it. When it comes to a proxy, it means that all the underlying shares of a certain custodian becomes a unit holder and they combine those all the shares. It could be me who is voting for, it could be someone else who owns shares in DBS, it could be who could be voting against. That's combined. The question is, how is it combined? Is it either in an offsetting manner or a simple majority manner? If it's an offsetting manner, if I have, say, 10 shares and I have 10 votes for, and someone else has eight shares and they vote eight shares against, it gets net settled. So that means 10 minus eight, two shares are voting for the merger. And similarly, they combine all the other people who have shares within that custodian. The custodian then takes that one proxy, goes into the shareholder meeting, and sets their vote. The other side is the simple majority, where if I have 10 shares voting for, someone else has eight shares voting against, because I have the majority, the simple majority, they will only take the 10 shares that are voting for the merger to be displayed at the eventual meeting. And this rule of how individual custodians define offsetting versus simple majority, it's not set by uh, Sabana or ESR, it's done at the custodian level. So there is some amount of flexibility to that. So from the perspective of, you know, coarse capital as well as black, black crane capital, Previously, when there were two proxies allowed per unit holder, one could see all the votes that were either for or against. But now, given that there's, uh, you know, I think it was yesterday where they filed this amendment to the deed where they want to just have one proxy, there can potentially be uh, uncertainty as to who exactly, how many people have voted for or how many people have voted against. There isn't the full transparency aspect that's coming in. The caveat to all of this, though, is Sabana is right to mention that for most, if not, if not all, read dealings and typical M&A transactions that take place in the SGX, there usually is only the one proxy rule. So in this case, you know, evidently, uh, as you mentioned in the beginning, Coarse Capital and Black Crane are, have been quite against this potential quote-unquote panic selling that's taking place at a very substantial discount. And the fact that, you know, so recent or as late in the game as Sabana has done to try and change things around from typical two proxy or for their deed, I should say, the two proxy voting vis-a-vis -vis one is causing a little bit of an issue. Beautifully said. I'm going to go back and listen to that again um, several times ahead of uh, the the meeting that's going to be happening tomorrow, that historic vote. We should know tomorrow afternoon whether the deal goes through or not. Thank you very much for that, Arun. All right, let's turn to the rest of our show this morning. And uh, we want to start with key sectors that you are looking at in a post-vaccine world, Arun? Sure thing. So you know, markets are mostly efficient most of the time, right? Mm -hmm. And we could clearly see when, as soon as the vaccine news came out, 
the extremely frothy valuation stocks related to work from home, be it Zoom, Netflix, Peloton, uh, you know, they all got hammered. They got crushed quite a bit, be it from very inflated levels. And the flip side is uh, airlines, hotel cruise liners, uh, they came off substantially from their loads. So from that aspect, you know, the market was very quick to react to try and correct some of its frothy valuation, while at the same time, a lot of people realize there's quite a bit of value at in these really cheaply traded stocks based on absolute metrics, be it price to earnings, price to cash flow, et cetera, and they got a little bit of a boost. The flip side, though, is, you know, from my perspective, the long term, there is still quite a bit of uncertainty going around in the markets. You know, all these uh, recent headlines, let's take a look at uh, Hewlett Packard Enterprise yesterday announcing that, you know, they're going to be leaving Silicon Valley, they're moving to Texas. Twitter saying there's going to be work from home for life. Facebook saying 50% of the staff will probably continue to work from home in the very far distant future. So these are massive companies with large workforces whose business as usual processes are going to be extremely different. And this doesn't just apply to the individual employee having to commute from work or not, right? There's a lot of secondary and tertiary effects of this, be it transportation stocks, be it uh, your roadside deli over there next to your office where they used to go and grab lunch all the time. Mm. So from the aspect of how the entire economy will take shape, is still something, a bit of a question mark, which individual companies are trying to assess based on be it safety and the health aspect of their individual employees, or for that matter, whether you know their employees are actually enjoying this aspect of partially working from home or partially working from the office, et cetera. So from that aspect, uh, I think you know there are a lot of paradigm shifts that will take place in the economy. I do believe that this is not the last we've heard of the pandemic in terms of not just like the COVID wave spiking up or down, but in terms of the massive hit this has taken on many consumers, like the individual borrowers, their wallets. Leave aside the MNCs for a little bit, SMEs. They have taken a massive hit of basically of many of them not having pretty much any revenue for the past six to eight months. What's the strength of their balance sheet? How will uh, the financial institutions that are not so strong, that their own balance sheets might not be strong, how will they be affected in the long run? So putting all of that together, in a remotely semi or properly functioning economy, who will be there to support all of these people? And to me, that is going to be definitely the government. So... I, you know, in the more, and this is not just the short-term basis, but in the foreseeable future, like I'm thinking more, say, two to three years plus. Mm. And in that spectrum, I think pharmaceuticals, if you have obviously the circle of competence, which I'll be the first to admit I do not, that's going to be one sector that will be very, very interesting to people who know what they're doing in that space. And as you rightly mentioned, right, like logistics. And by logistics, I don't mean just the pharma uh, sector, like moving the vaccine from one place to the other, but just generally the aspect of either working from home or this whole e-commerce boom that's taken shape. How will, which company will succeed the best in 
making the most efficient operations to transport goods from one place to the other. I think a couple of other interesting factors is going to be infrastructure. Lots of government money is going to be put into that space, primarily due to the multiplier effect. Uh, you construct a building, then you need to have like proper roads, you need to have the electrical aspect to it, uh, the steel industry, the concrete industry, many more jobs that take place. So, you know, that sector should hopefully have a very nice tailwind from a lot of government handouts and government money. And infrastructure, not just in terms of hard infrastructure, but technology side also. 5G, right? It's going to definitely revolutionize the way hardware and software are able to commingle with each other, providing us a better standard of life. Along with that will obviously come semiconductors because that's the integral, that's the heart of the hardware that's going to be put in place. And I would say last but not the least, uh, renewable energy. This whole aspect of you know the Paris climate change, hopefully now with the U.S. back on track, uh, with them joining the accord again, uh, you know one would hope that a lot more energy and focus of not just the government but also individual entrepreneurs will continue to go into that space, and uh, it's most definitely we will see a lot of winners coming out from there. Rich insights there, Arun. Thank you very much for that. And, you know, far from turning away our listeners with your very considered response to my first question for you, I hope you don't mind. I have a raft of questions, follow-up questions from listeners, but I'm only going to pick one. We were talking a little earlier about Sabana Reed seeking that approval for an amendment to its trustee for the appointment yep. of only one proxy for the scheme meeting versus two proxies for any meeting of the REIT by custodians. So here's the question. I understand, Arun, uh, here's a listener saying, I understand you say this will affect transparency, but will it affect the outcome? <laughs> uh, to be honest, see, this is exactly where the question comes in, right? Because uh, to be honest, I have no idea what individual custodian, whether they decide to go for the offsetting or the simple majority rule. And hence, on the back of that, what will the eventual majority come in? So the way the Savannah-REIT uh, eventual merger or not will take place is based on two factors. Uh, one is the headcount condition, where there has to be an approval by more than half of the total number, and the value condition, where there's an approval required of at least 75% of the value of units voted. It's especially when the value of units voted comes into play in depending on which of these rules, again, the offsetting or the simple majority rule, that will take place based on the individual custodian level. Given the nature of this merger, while you know there are these two relatively larger uh, fund managers who are quite substantially against it, uh, at least the readings that I have done, be it in news media publications or on chat rooms, uh, it seems to be that they're kind of siding with the management that, look, this cost structure, as you were highlighting too, Michelle, at the beginning of the show, the cost structure just doesn't make sense. If you're going to get into a REIT, it needs to be much larger, be it at a potentially you know, lower than expected price. Ho- the hope is that in the long run, the, there will be, this will be a value accretive acquisition. So from that perspective, you know, it, I would care to wager that it will probably go through. The fact of uh, did the two proxy versus one proxy make a difference? It is highly possible. 
but it's just sadly one of those things that if this deed does, does get passed through, it's something we will sadly not know. Oh, beautifully, beautifully answered. Thank you very much for that. All right, we're going to leave that topic and move to U.S. and China. They seem to be spiraling. According to energy expert Dan Jurgen, he sees the U.S. and China locked in a wrestle for power. He's worried that they're not working to engage and collaborate with each other. Jurgen is vice chairman of IHS Market, and uh, he was weighing in on a report that cited sources saying that Donald Trump is planning to add China's national offshore oil and gas producer, CNOOC, to a defense blacklist. He's described this as an alarming situation and a spiral of, um, you know, competition and strategic rivalry instead of collaboration and engagement. So what do you think the fallout of this could be? And do you think this is going to have a knock-on effect on oil prices? You know, I'll probably try and split this up into two parts, right? Like one is the whole geopolitical angle. And the second one is actual demand and supply of the underlying good. So let's try and address the first topic uh, to begin with. Uh, you know, it was interesting he mentioned that uh, in that report, he was also mentioning the that Trump is basically setting up a whole bunch of landmines, which Biden will find it extremely difficult to navigate. And he's basically painted Biden into a corner. So regardless of when he does come into power uh, next year, you know, his hands are going to be basically tied. And, you know, this kind of takes us back to, you know, remember like years and years ago, and by that I mean just mean last year, when the trade war had just started shaping up, this is all that we were talking about, right, Michelle? I mean, this was Absolutely. literally every Thursday. This was <laughs> nonstop because it, it, it's scary, right? You have the two largest economies in the world going at it, and everyone is going to come out to be the loser, especially countries, that where we are living in, right? Like Singapore, which is so dependent on inter-country trade. So from that aspect, it's very, very concerning where when geopolitics gets heavily involved into the economy. So looking at, uh, you know, like the roster of people that Biden has put in charge, though, extremely seasoned professionals, which can hope that there's at least going to be some kind of diplomatic sensibility that would be brought to the world political arena. So hopefully the geopolitical issues, even though you know Trump has put in a whole bunch of landmines, hopefully the quality and caliber and the seasoned professionals that Biden has in store will ensure that there will be a smooth, maybe not a smooth transition, but at least the two largest economies can start getting back on track. But make no mistake about this, right? This is not just... Uh, U.S. being anti-China. The U.S. is the only one that's large enough to actually try and, you know, get into a fight with China. Every, so many other countries out there, be it EU, Australia, Canada, Japan, India, everyone is kind of tired of the fact of the potential uh, allegation that China, from the central level, is subsidizing its industries quite substantially, and hence, because it's a low-cost producer, the manufacturing bowl of the world, quote-unquote, it's getting all the jobs over there, like all the factories are moving over there, and hence leading to massive uh, trade deficits. So from that perspective, I do feel that China kind of has to extend the olive branch first, knowing fully well that now there's a more potentially stable uh, adversary in the form of Joe Biden representing the U.S., 
and they can try and take those steps to try and you know build that bridge once again. So that at least I am quite hopeful mm. that there will be a sense of sensibility over there. The oh, supply, right. the supply demand though is completely different, right? From that aspect, uh, you know, obviously IHS market has many more data points to analyze vis-a-vis uh, -vis what I have. But the claim that oil demand will come back by 2022, 2023 mm. is very refreshing. So one can hope that can happen. But, you know, if it takes another six months to a year, a year before a proper vaccine comes out and travel starts coming back in, these are extremely capital intensive industries, right? Be it mm. shipping, refineries, producers, and that could be quite damaging to the entire sector. All right. I have to take a commercial break, but we're going to come back because we have a couple of minutes left with Arun. So stay with me. Are you thinking of putting cash to work? Well, Jonathan Golub from Credit Suisse suggests waiting until after December. We'll quiz Arun about that timeline. What, what happens in December? We'll figure it out. Hold on. All right, back with Money and Me. My guest is Arun Pai. He is Chief Strategy Officer at Flow, and he joins us to demystify what is going on in markets. Uh, we're, we're talking about what you should be doing with your cash now. So Credit Suisse Jonathan Golub believes that the latest all-time highs will run into trouble in December. He says, if you're somebody who just came into a boatload of money, maybe wait until after the inauguration um, to put it in the market. He says, there are reasonable, decent headwinds for things like Christmas sales, which are important. But we're starting to see on the back of this a bit of a pickup in unemployment claims. And he expects the U.S. to have a better grip on the pandemic as those vaccines become available. So what do you make of this timeline? Should we, is it time to take profit? Is uh, What do you make of this? Uh, Arun? Well, you know, Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's right-hand man, says it best when he says timing the market is a fool's errand. So from using that as the overarching uh, rationale to my answer, I would say, you know, unless you're a professional and have the benefit of the power of the seat in a financial institution that enables you to make these very quick moves in and out primarily in the option space, I would say, which presumably most of the listeners are not, investing really shouldn't be about punting and going in and out of stocks or any asset class for that matter, just because of certain headline news. Mm. But thinking about investing more as strategically in the long run to see amongst all the avenues that are there, where can I deploy capital, which will be the most rewarding for me, be it financially in terms of returns, or otherwise, like, you know, buying a landed house or buying a HDB or buying a condo or something like that. So from that perspective, I think we should distinctly, you know, completely separate out the concept of, you know, just putting money to deploy right now because something's happening in the market, potentially taking it out in two or three weeks. All that enables is the broker, which is the discount brokerage platform or your private banker that you're dealing with mm. to make the bid offer spread. So from that perspective, it, it would make a lot more sense for investors to, you know, as always, scale into markets. If you're coming to address your specific question, mm -hmm. if you come into a boatload of money right now, you will always hear two sides of the market, right? Because for every buyer, there's going to be a seller. For every seller, there's going to be a buyer. There are a number of really, you know, famous gurus on both sides of the spectrum that have claimed that, you know, the market is extremely overpriced, whereas the other ones are saying that the market is, is extremely underpriced, interest rates are low, there's, you know, the future is very, very uh, positive ahead of you. 
if the if suddenly right now you're sitting in a boatload of cash scaling into the market in a regular basis without the need for that money back to you over the course of at least a year to two years is the is the angle i believe that investors should always be taking in the market regardless of it being december or it being jan the santa claus effect or not etc cetera, etc cetera. there'll always be this thing right like sell in may and go away and like the jan effect and the feb effect like every month has a certain effect in investing <laughs> really yeah. it really does i mean you can google that and there are all these various idioms that have come out and phrases but anyways taking a step aside from that Overall from the perspective of valuation it really depends on at what point of time you need the money back from your investment and no investor should be going into the stock market be it in december or in jan with the hope that in one month they'll be able to you know appreciate the value of that by 10% 30% 100% whatever that number is it should not be a very short time frame horizon for investing one should always think of investing as a long term savings aspect. So from that regard, interest rates are zero right now. You put money in your bank, it will give you nothing. So keeping that much cash in the account is always going to be uh potentially, you know, if inflation especially if inflation does pick up, it will be a net negative on your savings. Does that mean that you rush into I don't know, like Zoom or Netflix because it's appreciated by three times over the past 8 months? Mm. Probably not. a diversified set of instruments be it equity or fixed income depending on you know your age and your own risk tolerance and slowly scaling into investments is always the way to go i feel Okay now I would like to get into Tesla because Elon Musk sent uh, an email out urging cost cutting saying our stocks will immediately get crushed like a souffle under a sledgehammer if we don't control costs um but I think that we're going to save that for for another day for a discussion because the clock is telling me no I have to play another ad so uh, I <laughs> It'll spare you from getting into Tesla, Arun. Thanks. Where, where was that sledgehammer six months ago, Michelle? <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Good point. Well, thank you, Arun, for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Ah, uh, he's Arun Pai. We love speaking with him because he makes things understandable for us. Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. I'm Michelle Martin, and you're listening to Money and Me. Before acting on the information on Money FM. Please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SBH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.